Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. This Sunday we're going to begin an Advent series, which will take us through the month of December. God willing, we'll pick back up with Exodus in uh, January on the 8th. Uh, you might ask yourself when you approach the season of Christmas and Advent, what are the, the historical scriptures that have been used in the church to celebrate the coming of the Christ? Well, all of our sermons that are going to be used this month are taken from what's called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's actually a collection of passages which have been used throughout the history of the church on specific dates during the calendar. And so when you come here to the month of December on this particular date, Matthew chapter 3 is a passage which has been historically used. What better way for us to begin thinking about the coming of Christ than to listen to the one who was sent by God to prepare the way for the Christ himself. This is John the Baptist. We pick up at Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Remember as we read that this is God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. God in heaven, each week I'm, I'm thankful that you're the one who feeds your sheep. Uh, Lord, if it was left to, be, to me, they would be malnourished, but you are the God who opens your word and sends forth your spirit. So I pray that you would do that very thing. Open your word, send forth your spirit, and give your people ears to hear what you would have for us to say, to hear today. We ask this again through Jesus our Lord. Amen. How, how do you go about determining the, the sincerity of the repentance of someone else? Is it tears? Is it outward promises? A mentor pastor of mine said to me pretty early on in my ministry, he said, Eric, you can't tell much about repentance by way of tears. And then over the years, through the course of life in the church, I've seen the truth of those words again. And again, I really want to believe tears. So much grief, so much expression. Some of you know, 
you can't actually measure repentance based on tears. Then, of course, there's the issue of, of timing. For instance, if you apologize before you get caught, that's sincere. Apologize after you're caught, and then, well, I can't believe you. You're just sad you got caught. But then again, if timing is really the main factor, then the repentance of of King David in Psalm 51 would have to be illegitimate, right? David's prayer of confession and repentance, it's his heart cry of, of against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. Against you have I done what's evil in your sight. Well, that comes only after the prophet Nathan confronts him. And yet the Bible indicates that David's repentance is, is genuine. So maybe, maybe timing is not the most important factor. In my role as a pastor over the years, on the occasions when I've seen what later proved to be false repentance in someone, my first thought is almost always disappointment. Well, I'd hoped it was real this time. But my second thought is almost always fear. And that is because if his or her repentance proved to be insincere, how can I know that my own repentance is for real? How can I know that that even mine is sincere? Maybe you've wondered that about yourself. Is my repentance real? Is it sincere? And then how is it that, that, that in the Bible somehow repentance prepares the way for the kingdom of God to come and to, and to dwell right here in my heart? This text addresses all of that. Really, Matthew's recording for us two sermons from John the Baptist. And both of those sermons make the same point. Repentance must lead you to Christ or else it's not truly repentance. And so the passage before us breaks down into these two points. We'll talk about the people's admission and then the Spirit's action. So we start with the the people's admission, and you notice right off the bat John's place. Where is John preaching? Verse 1 says he's in the wilderness of Judea. Does that really matter? Yeah, that matters because he, he is not in the city He's actually not in the place where the the vast majority of people would hear him. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the the center of religious life in his day. He's in the desert. He's far away from where most people would see him. We've been studying the Exodus for so many months. What's the significance of the desert? Well, for the ancient Hebrew people, the desert is the place that, that sits between their slavery in Egypt and their promised land life. The desert is in a, a kind of holding place. It's a place of, of growth for them. It's the place where God is teaching them to get rid of their sin. The desert is going to be the place, isn't it, where God, where God purges Israel of her sins. And it sits between Egypt and Canaan. The desert is the place where God's going to make them into a, a holy nation. And so the, the desert symbolism is spiritually important. I wonder how many of you can trace your own spiritual growth to the very places or the times in your own life that seemed at first like a desert. How often 
in the desert places of life, when you feel exposed, when you feel like you're at risk, that it's there that the Lord speaks through His Word, through His Spirit. Isaiah's prophecy in verse 3 is one of the many places that led first century Jews to be expecting a prophet to come out of the, the wilderness, out of the desert. They're looking for a voice from out there. And so in two ways, John's preaching here in the desert strikes like a, like a trumpet blast in a quiet library. And that is, first of all, it comes from out in the middle of the desert, out in the middle of nowhere. And secondly, there hasn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. It's roughly the same amount of time between when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock to today. God's been silent in Israel that long And the silence has been deafening. And so right off the bat, this place. And next, the message. Look at verse 2. The message is simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, I think it's a word we take for granted. Meaning we slide across it really quickly. What does it mean? In the Greek language, when it's used outside the Bible, it means to change your mind or it means to, to feel regret. But is, is that really the substance of John's message? Change your thinking, feel some regret. I think even Christians think that way. As if you could define repentance by feeling sorry for something you did or, or sorry for something you failed to do, that may be part of it. But is John calling those who hear his voice to feel sorry for hurting someone, even if it's God? Is that the substance of true repentance? Is the heart of repentance just feeling terrible? No. Maybe that's a part of it. That can't be all of it. Quite often, your sense of guilt and your feelings of shame lead you to sink to a place of despair, to sink more deeply, and you think, if I, if I just keep going lower and lower, then eventually I'll get to the place where that was enough. Repentance. As if my genuine feelings just have to get severe. How many of us have been taught or thought or acted as if the heart of repentance is, is, is self-loathing? I'm such an idiot. Why do I do that again and again? Because I'm stupid. I hate myself. You remember what the Bible said about Judas after he betrayed Jesus? Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, Judas was his betrayer. He saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of the temple in the temple, he departed and he went out and he hanged himself. Judas feels awful. He even knows that he's sinned. Judas is filled with remorse. An old seminary professor of mine said instead of taking his sorrow to God, he despaired and he, and he turned inward. He didn't turn Godward. So his remorse became self-condemnation, but self-condemnation is not repentance. I think this is a great reminder to you and me because 
the reality is that repentance, and everybody knows this, repentance means I, I'm making a 180 degree shift. I'm, I'm literally turning in the opposite direction. But to sit there and continue to loathe my own sin and beat myself up, that's actually remaining in the same direction. Because if sin is the pursuit of self, to wallow and despair and loathe myself, I'm actually still sitting there worshiping myself. The message of repentance is turn not simply from something else, but to someone else. Genuine, sincere repentance has more to do with your direction than it does with the amount of grief you feel. That's actually why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, there's a distinction between worldly grief, the kind that leaves you feeling bad for yourself, your pain, your shame, your, ba- your damaged reputation, all those friendships you messed up, and the godly grief which leads to repentance. And and the difference is that, that a godly grief starts with this inward look. I've sinned, but it will not stay inward. I've sinned against God and my actions have hurt others, but a godly grief looks up. Lord, my Savior, I turn from my wicked ways. I turn to you alone, for you are a gracious God. Suddenly, when you realize that there's a directional component, where does a broken-hearted, humble sinner go? When they sin, it makes sense, doesn't it, that John is preaching a, a message of repentance because he's trying to prepare the way for the Lord, who is the direction for which you must turn. Only those who admit their sin in a humble way will actually receive the king. Westminster Shorter Catechism blends these components in a helpful way. Question 87, what's repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after a new obedience. So it it recognizes, of course, there's an owning it, but there's also a turning to someone. So we've covered John's place and his message. Let's talk quickly about his clothes. Verse 4, there's this garment of camel hair, a leather belt around his waist. He's eating grasshoppers and, and honey. What he wears and what he eats is significant. It's It's poverty. He is living a strict, sober life. To us, it just looks odd. But to those who came out to hear his sermons, they they get it. It made sense. For 400 years, they've been looking for the man who had come before the man. And why were they looking? Because Isaiah, of course, said there would be a preparer. And Malachi said there would be another one who's kind of like Elijah, who preaches a very similar message to Elijah, a message of of warning. And so they recognize we're either going to receive the Messiah or we're going to miss him. John's clothes are significant. He's wearing the same clothes. He's preaching the same message as Elijah and his place and his message and his clothes. What's their response? 
Verse 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, you wouldn't expect a message, a sermon on repentance out in the middle of the desert to be a popular draw. And yet it, it is. Even the secular historian Josephus talks about this like it was a, a kind of revival in the desert. People come and they hear John's message and they confess. Most Jews at this point would have thought about baptism in one of two ways. First, in order for a Gentile to be brought into the covenant people of God, he needed to receive a kind of washing because he's, he's of course, ceremonially unclean. But when someone, some in Israel then also began to take on uh, ceremonial washings, here's the difference. John connects that with the Gentiles, with those little, small ceremonial washings that are taking place, and suddenly the message comes clear. It's not just those Gentiles who need to be cleansed. It's not just you and me who sort of need to be cleansed a little bit. It is the fact that sin makes us deeply unclean. I must be washed. The baptism is important. Verse 6 tells us that confessing, admitting is the thing which is the most important part. Uh, In fact, one commentator says it's the single most helpful word in the paragraph. Because certainly the Spirit of God is at work, but the people respond in faith. You may find it interesting to know. I think it was Abraham Kuyper who pointed out that Scripture refers to conversion almost 140 times in the Bible as being an act of, of, man, of man. And yet only six times as if it's simply an act of the Holy Ghost. Why would the Bible place such an emphasis on it? And you and I, we're Reformed people, right? We don't think about it that way. We don't think that the Bible is actually calling us to be an active participant in our own conversion, but it is. Because the Bible is written to people who must respond as the Spirit convicts them, one New Testament scholar says, the remedy for sin is not denying sin's presence. It's not explaining it away. It's openly admitting it. We're free from sin only when we face it. We disown sin by owning up to it. So that the law actually becomes a threshold, the doorway to the gospel. That's why we use 1 John 1, 8 and 9 this morning to confess our sins. If we say we have no sins, we we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's John, the baptizer. He stands between the Old Testament and the, the chain of redemption. He stands as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And while he grips hands with Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi, he reaches forward and he grabs hold of the hand of Christ. As if to say, God's word reveals to you your sin, but do not despair. When you see your sin, when you admit it to the Lord, the stage is rightly set to receive the king. The people's admission of sin is the start, but repentance must lead you to Christ or else it's not truly repentance. The Spirit's action 
now is what we cover, and it's really the second sermon of John here. It's verses 7 through 12. It's been called a sermon of fire because of the force with which John confronts the religious leaders of his day. Let me make something clear to you. You hear the words Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees are are what we would think of as a fellowship of, of conservative laymen. They're popular in the the local synagogues. They, they're studied. In fact, they're thought of as even being more rigorous than, than the Scriptures themselves. First century Jews thought of Pharisees. They were thinking of people who, who really, truly take their faith seriously. Sadducees think of themselves as sophisticated, more theologically astute than the, than the laymen. I mean, these are the, the paid professionals. These are the clergy both groups see themselves as the, as the keepers of all things religious. And when you understand that confessing sins is the crucial part to John's message, then it makes sense why John is really harsh with these guys. Because the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees both taught people to, to, to learn to justify themselves before God. Well, I'm a I'm a descendant of Abraham. I've never murdered anyone. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I come from this tribe. The word confess or admit is the exact opposite of self-justifying religion. John says, don't try to justify yourself. Accuse yourself. Own it. You cannot justify yourself before God. Does it surprise you at all that people in John's day were trying to learn to justify themselves before God? It shouldn't. It's the very song that the world sings. I'm a pretty good person. If there is a God, he's going to have to, in the end, think something well of me because I've done far more good than I've done bad. Feeling self-justified, the religious leaders go to check out John's ministry, not with sincerity, but they come to investigate. And they come to find something, and they hope to move that way in subtlety, perhaps then to strike him with venom. He's unapproved. And so, it's that subtle movement, it's that desire to to strike that causes John to call them snakes. Verse 7, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John didn't take any preaching classes with me in seminary. Nor did he ever study the point that you need to really win friends and and influence people. I chuckled to myself as I was reading a commentary this week that said, I would not feel comfortable recommending John's preaching style today. No. You serious? It sounds so brutal, doesn't it? I think that misses the point. This sermon is not for the sake of tenderness. It is for the sake of warning to be clear. Like the doctor who correctly diagnoses the illness, John says, you're eaten alive with smugness. You who rely on self-righteousness to feel spiritually secure, the ground crumbles beneath your feet. You come to the desert with a with a clipboard in your hand. You're looking to see if I check all the boxes. He says, you can't flee the wrath to come without genuine repentance. 
And the only way that you'd know if you had genuine repentance is there would be fruit bearing in your heart, even as Scott prayed this morning, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And John's saying, do you see any of that? How would you know if you had a genuine heart change? You'd see the fruit. Contrast that with the way that the religious leaders thought about justifying themselves and feeling safe from God's wrath. And he immediately anticipates their rejection. I mean, excuse me, their objection. Verse 9, look at it. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, no one avoids God's judgment by way of family heritage. In fact, it doesn't matter if your parents or your grandparents believed. In fact, you you imagine he looks at the rocks on the banks of the Jordan River and he said, those are just as qualified to be the sons of God as all the rest of you who have no faith. And you and I should hear that message too. It's a fitting warning in a southern culture. In a place where practically everyone considers themselves a Christian so long as they're not something else. As I listen carefully to John's sermon, I actually find that it speaks a pretty helpful reminder to me. I wonder if I'm resting my spiritual security on anything that is not Christ. On anything less than Jesus. Everybody knows your family can't save you from your sins. But sometimes when you're growing up in a Christian home, it is sort of easy to, to forget that, that, that I actually must take Christ myself. I actually must embrace him myself. It's easy for a college student to come and, and think back while I was raised in a Christian home. Here's the moment then, isn't there, where you should reach out and grab hold of Christ more than that, adults who, who are, are, are confident in their good theology, who are confident in their wise choices, who are confident in their generous giving or in their clean living. John would say, those things can't save you from the, the wrath to come. The only thing that can save you is Christ. And so then John transitions to a tone of urgency. Look at verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Dan Doriani says that the axe man is is sizing up a barren tree, and he's ready to to swing it if it does not bear fruit. In other words, judgment day is, is near. And the Pharisees and Sadducees must know that the hour is not here to evaluate John, but to repent of their sins and to flee God's judgment by running to the Christ. The goal of preaching is to show you your need and then to point you to Christ. So John steps back, he gets out of the way, and he pivots. He turns and he looks to the Christ. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I'll baptize you. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So let's ask this question. What is it that John means about his own baptism? He means that the baptism that I give you corresponds to repentance. That's important. Because only when you are deeply aware of the filth of your own sin do you want to see that sin, in a sense, put to death, drowned in the depths of the the water. 
That's the image of John's baptism. I repent, but only God would cleanse me. But of course, genuine repentance isn't going to leave you drowning in the water. Repentance must point you to the one who really does the cleansing. That's why Jesus' baptism is superior to John's. Because Jesus' baptism doesn't symbolize cleansing, it does the cleansing. And now we're not talking about water anymore. John says there's something different. How does Jesus' baptism come forward and cleanse with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, the phrase has actually been understood two ways historically, and I think both are true. On, on the one hand, when a person admits their sins, when they confess their own guilt and turns to Christ for salvation, there is a powerful working of the Lord Jesus in their hearts. And that conversion then causes the Holy Spirit to come into your heart. And Jesus, applying his grace to you, burns away your sin. Augustine said that the law was given that grace might be sought. And in a sense, that's really the message that John is preaching. The law, so that sinners would look. But Augustine goes on to say that grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit's fire burning within your heart. And that's comforting because if you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And he burns a spiritual fire which melts away your sin. By faith in Christ, you're justified once and for all. Your sins are not counted against you. Beyond that, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you burns off the sin. That's sanctification. The other way that this has been understood, this concept of spirit and fire is that Jesus is going to baptize everyone either with his spirit for salvation or with the fire of God's judgment. Talk about an unpopular message. I think that's why John closes with the illustration that he does. Jesus is, is right now clearing the threshing floor. He'll, he'll gather the, the weed. He'll burn off the chaff. It's very important, isn't it, for us to hear both sermons from John. Yes, you must repent of your sins, but your repentance is not measured by how bad you feel for your sins. It's not measured by how severely you despair or how much you hate yourself. It's not measured by how big your promises are to do better next time. It's measured by where you go with your sins. In the Bible, Repentance is marked by a genuine admission from your sins, but also a faith-driven run to the cross. Repentance must lead you to Christ, or else it's not true repentance. Let's go to the Lord with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the richness which it tells. Oh, Father, given what we've heard and seen from John, it's pretty evident we even need to repent of our repentance. I ask you, God, to teach us to run to Christ, to fix our eyes upon him, that he is enough. We pray this in his name. Amen.